Cause it's a pain A destiny child You know it will be rocking Cause it's flipping insane It's just a pain A destiny child More precious than a diamond On a platinum chain In Venice Beach there was a Welcome to the pick The first rule of the pick is please tell everyone about this. We need much more audience. The second rule of the pick is also, we have a website, mildlypleased.com. Please go there, too. Uh, we write stuff there, and we need help. Uh, and <laughs> this is us, Sean Lemmy. John Otney. And Colin Westman. Because we're not even anonymous in this in this club, the pick, the pick club. How many podcasts do you think there have been that where they talk about Fight Club and it opens with the first rule? <laughs> you got to do it. I guess 100% of them start that. The way. thing is that's not just like one scene in the movie. They there is a lot of the first rule is blank in in this movie. Yeah, is that the tagline on the poster? What's the tagline in the Fight Club? I wonder if it's something cool or if it's something that doesn't seem to make any sense it just seems like a risky tagline because you're saying like we don't want this movie to have any word of mouth because we don't want anyone to talk about well, fight club okay so on that classic fight club poster where brad pitt is holding the soap it just says mischief period mayhem period soap period that's it hilarious it sounds like it was marketed by people who are like i don't know what it's about Look at the poster and they're like these guys look real mischievous like they got the image for the poster but they didn't get the plot so So, yes uh, we are going to be doing a lot of talking in this episode about Fight Club but before we get to that we have some little picks to talk about and my little pick this week is Between Two Ferns the movie a Netflix original but also apparently a Funny or Die co-production I don't know how that works um, they own the rights. They also they're in the movie. Yeah, I know. Well, it's also like how there's that Breaking Bad movie coming out on Netflix, but that's like AMC. They're just not going to air it. Yeah, I guess I guess Netflix can just be a distributor, and that's cool. Yeah. Now, because uh, they're so big and they have so much money. Uh, so the the film is uh, directed by Scott Ackerman, uh, the Earwolf, you know, Comedy Bang Bang guy. Who I believe was one of the original like creators of the the web series back in the day, um, and I noticed he filled the supporting cast. I mean, obviously the movie is, is full of celebrities because the concept is Zach Galifianakis has to interview I think eleven celebrities to get promoted to a full real late night talk show. Um, but the rest of the supporting cast are like Earwolf's best and brightest. Um, so like Zach Galifianakis' crew are Lauren Lapkus and Ryan Gall and Giovanni Linayo, uh, who are people I know because I listen to a few Earwolf podcasts like Spontaneous Nation, uh, which, with Paul F. Tompkins, which you also see Paul F. Tompkins in this movie. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's improvised. Mostly the movie just exists for these interview scenes. They kind of have this mockumentary filler in between them to sort of get you from point A to point B and that stuff is fine occasionally great but mostly pretty fine um, but the interviews themselves I think are as good as they've ever been like still very funny um, and the good thing about that is they are going to also release the full interviews as Between Two Ferns episodes um, so you can check that out too if you don't Think you can stomach the whole movie, but I would I would recommend checking out the movie. It's it's worth their time. It also has an original song in it by uh, 
Matt Berninger and Phoebe Bridgers, mm. which is like weird and surprising and cool. Uh, and they're in a scene. Also. Yeah, they're in a scene. They're in the movie. Um, so yeah, maybe uh, comedy is dead in the cinema, but it's, it's doing fine online. Yeah. I saw it. It was funny. Yeah, <laughs> I, I laughed. I think you said it, you think it was funnier than I did. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed seeing the bloopers at the end. Yeah. Because it definitely like brings you into the process of how these interviews are made. Where it definitely seems like the guests have no idea what questions Zach Galifianakis is going to ask them. And so a lot of the times they'll just ask them and they'll just be like, ah. I don't know how to react to that. <laughs> That's so me. Um, My favorite of the bloopers is when he's interviewing Letterman, and Letterman's talking about interviewing Malala Yousafzai, and he says, Zach Galifianakis is even paying attention. He says, who's I talking about? Zach Galifianakis says, you, Adam Carolla? <laughs> um, who goes next? I think it's John, but uh-huh. you can go next because you... Seems so excited. I'm, I do. Go for it. Oh, I'm just so happy to be here, guys. <laughs> um, so my pick is uh, another music biography, uh, one that I tried to just like cram in reading before uh, my my big move to the East Coast this weekend because I didn't want to lug it all the way across the country because it weighs like 10 pounds um what it's a gift you got me shot it's beastie oh. boys book <laughs> uh glad you cherish it so much you want to leave it behind <laughs> it's just it's so heavy because <laughs> uh, it's got so much stuff in it um but it was pretty easy to to read through i guess because it's it's like kind of half a, a like visual coffee book or coffee table book but also you know kind of an oral history of of the beastie boys um just about their whole the whole arc of their career and it's told by adam horovitz and uh mike d michael diamond um the two uh, still living members of the beastie boys and it's just, it's just a lot of fun because you get to read about these three guys that were just best friends as teenagers and just like love joking around and making music with each other and like uh, it's also interesting to hear about them growing up in in Manhattan when like a lot of exciting things were happening in the underground art world there uh, of course that was when hip-hop was being born up in the bronx and then uh punk rock also uh at cbgvs and stuff and they obviously got into hardcore uh punk in the early 80s and or were like a punk band and then became this rap group and they got big and i don't know it's just fun hearing all their different adventures and how much uh, they just love discovering new music and infusing these new sounds that they were finding in record stores and just putting them into their music and uh, and I feel like the book being sort of a mishmash of a lot of like styles like a lo- uh, there are other people who write like guest chapters in the book like Spike Jones does a chapter where he he introduces like a bunch of photographs he took while 
making music videos with the Beastie Boys in the mid-90s, and he just kind of comments on them. And then there's also a chapter where Amy Poehler just reviews all of the Beastie Boys videos because she's just a huge fan. And then there are other sections by people who, you know, played with them or recorded with them. Uh, and, yeah, just, just the fact that it's such, like, a, a mishmash and is, is by no means a perfect book, but has so many, like, fun things going on with it makes it feel a lot like a, a Beastie Boys record. And so it's also been fun uh, listening to the, all their albums again as well. Do they talk about pizza? Because uh, they're the, standing in front of a pizza. you look at the book and it looks like the book's called Pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they do a little bit. Yeah, they talk about pizza. <laughs> the official shipping weight of the Beastie Boys book is three point five pounds. Okay, not not quite ten Still, pounds. <laughs> Pretty heavy. That's that's more than I would have expected. Yeah. I also would like to recommend a book. It comes in at a measly two point nine pounds. Yeah. Uh, but it's good Uh, I got it last Christmas and I've kind of been paging through it but I've been going ham on it lately for some reason I'm not sure why Uh, it's called Analog Nightmares the shot on video horror films of 1982 to 1995 this is niche on top of niche this is like the ultimate John book something that like there's gotta be 10 people in the world who are interested in shot on video horror movies which is that whole movement if you can even call it a movement we're in the early 80s underground filmmakers were just getting VHS camcorders and just shooting movies and then if it had a cool enough like case they could just put it in Blockbuster next to like real movies and maybe it would sell well so the book is kind of laid out like a catalog of listing all the titles and what I appreciate is the author like really like like dialed it down to like the essentials and like there's certain movies where if you look online people would say they're shot on video and he's like no this was shot on film and then transferred to video in post-production, it's not a shot on video movie. So he gets very specific. And probably the best part of it is him talking to the filmmakers of this movement. None of them really went on to anything. It's not like there's like a breakout star of the shot on video movement. Um, but it's just interesting because they're just guys, yeah, like shooting movies in their basements. And then they're like, yeah, they just sell them. That's what you could do back then. And you go to the video store and it's not like you wouldn't know. You can't Google any of this stuff. If it has a cool enough cover, and you know the thing about those old like horror movies is they always had like really big boxes, like the Disney VHS tapes, to attract your attention. So like, well, it's got a big box. It's got to be good. <laughs> but in retrospect, that probably meant that it was going to be really bad. And I don't know why do I like these kinds of movies. It's kind of like watching home movies, but like where somebody really tried. And there's something really, I don't know, kind of charming about that. And um, it's not something that really exists anymore. It's a, it's a dead format. It's just like looking into the past. And some of these titles are hard to find, but uh, every once in a while I will find one and I'll watch it. And I usually have a pretty good time. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious that you can find some of these titles on Blu-ray, that that's a thing. Yeah, what's an example <laughs> of one of these movies that you've seen? Uh, well, one of my favorite uh, filmmakers, should I say filmmakers from this movement, are the Polonia brothers. They're these two brothers from rural Pennsylvania. And they made a movie, like, in high school called Splatter Farm, where they're just, like, on a farm and there's, like, a killer, like, sp- like splatting people's heads open with, like, a big hammer and shit. <laughs> and they then they, like, sold it. They're, like, 18 and, you, you know, went all across the country and and uh, they continued to make, like, gore. Most of the movies are, like, really gory. 
almost hmm. all of them are like slasher movies. But there's a lot of anthology stories too for some reason. Hmm. Um, and like stuff like video violence, cannibal campout. You know, and with if if the title like alphabetically is you know the right place, you could have it right next to a really big title like Cannibal Campout. Maybe that was right next to Carrie. I don't know. Was that part of the strategy? It's like I don't know. I think for some people, maybe like uh, sort of like those mockbuster movies. Yeah, except this seems like a little. It seems more sincere on the filmmaker's part, but I'm sure when it came to the guys who were actually like distributing this stuff, yeah, they tried every dirty trick in the book. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and this, you know, this only went to about the mid-90s, and then, of course, you got, you know, DV cameras and digital, and now it's all gone, so there's just these small group of people like me who uh, seeks this stuff out, and this book is a great way to, to seek it out. Do you ever feel frustrated that we were in, like, when, when we were growing up and, and learning how to become filmmakers, we were in this transitionary period where we were shooting on things like DV tape, which seems like such a shitty format in comparison to having just been on like video before or the crazy digital stuff that people have now. We were stuck like right at the beginning of that. Definitely frustrated. There's a lot of transition because when we were kids, yeah, VHS, and then we were shooting on like d- digital tape, <laughs> and then, yeah, then we moved on to whatever was next. Whereas like today, I could have. Like the stuff that I could shoot on my phone now is better than the stuff we shot in high school. Yeah, on, that's on that's kind of that's what kind of I was alluding to is like I feel like our stuff has aged the least well of like any technology <laughs> in film history. Even though that I look back at some of that DV tape stuff, I'm like that's kind of charming too in a way because it just doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It makes it special even though it looks hideous. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of appreciate it. Like yeah, it would be nice if it looked better and it's something that would preserve better throughout time. But at the same time. It's like a time capsule, and I like that. There is a part of me that wonders if we would have gotten as into it, though, if it was just something we could have done on our phones. Because I assume kids nowadays take it for granted they, they can film anything on their phone. But like, if you have a camera, you're like, oh, I got this machine that can film things that other kids you know aren't filming. I yeah. guess most kids could if they just I do, I picked do up their we, parents' I camera. I appreciate it more. Because, yeah, I think back to when we were in, like, pop culture class in high school, and it was always an option to do a video project, but how many other groups would do that? Not many, because it's like, well, I don't know, I have to go go find a camera, and then I have to find a way to film it, and I have to get it on a computer and edit it. That's a ton of work. You can just do a PowerPoint. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you can edit the whole thing on your phone now, too, so... I don't know. But it's also like, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit, yeah. It seems way more um, disposable now even though it all lives forever even though it lives forever it's weird just because there's so much of it man the russians are going to make sure it lives forever Mm -hmm. if not google and facebook at least the russians will have us (laughs) um so it's time to talk about fight club i want you to hit me as hard as you can why how much can you know about yourself you've never been in a fight wait let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. 
And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! You hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is... Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. Why'd you pick Fight Club, Sean? Who wants to hear three white guys talk about Fight Club? So I never seen the Fight Club. <laughs> That's a good enough reason, I suppose. Uh, I've seen a lot of David Fincher films. So I haven't seen all of them. Fight Club sort of stands out among them as this like cultural touchstone for so many people. Yeah. And I needed to know why. And I, I think I've come to a conclusion, but <laughs> let's uh, let's let's work our way to that point. All right. Uh, so just some background, I guess. The author of the book is Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote it in 1996. It was his first published uh, novel. And he's uh, gone on to have sort of a career as a novelist and also a journalist uh, who describes his work as transgressive fiction. Um, so he sounds like he has not gotten out of this um, this mindset of you know, fucking up the status quo with his, uh, with his work. But, uh, I, you gotta root for the guy because he's from Pasco and, uh, he now lives in Vancouver, Washington. So he's fairly local. That's pretty cool, right? I guess. Yeah. They mentioned SeaTac in Fight Club. They mentioned SeaTac. <laughs> Did they mention where Fight Club is set? It's just the city, no, right? They don't. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it's supposed to be like a, east coast city but it was all shot in la so who knows yeah I can also it's just a it. generic city yeah it's a shitty part of la or something uh except it's so miserable out la is so sunny yeah there's no sunshine in this movie <laughs> uh, also the screenwriter of this movie is jim oles um who didn't do too much <laughs> yeah i just clicked on his wikipedia there's just two credits for movies mm. colin have you looked him up yet don't look him up you... i just did oh i'm sorry i was gonna ask if you can guess yeah the other one is jumper i would have never guessed jumper. <laughs> it's a tough guess is that a book too yeah it is <laughs> <laughs> that's a racket man how do you get into adapting books jumper is a 1992 book wow well, the the cover of Jumper is pretty cool. It's uh, I'm not really sure what's going on. There's a guy in front of a VHS camcorder on a tripod, like vanishing and then appearing into a TV on the side, and there's a bookcase. It looks very Michael Crichton, and there's an Orson Scott card quote on top. Oh God! <laughs> Getting all those toxic men in this. That name looks familiar. Almost done. Almost done talking about Jumper. Okay, no. It was written by Stephen Gold, but I thought that was like that Stephen J. Gold guy. Not to be confused. The scientist. That nerd. (laughs) That nerd. Um, But I wanted to bring up Jim Oles because the original person the studio chose to write this movie was Buck Henry. Yeah, I read that. Which seems like a weird choice. (laughs) I don't think it's actually that weird a choice. Because Buck Henry wrote a movie called To Die For in 1995, which is also like kind of a satirical, very 90s movie starring Nicole Kidman, Gus Van Zandt movie. It's kind of better than this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually, I don't think it's that 
far out of left field, even though it seems like it because he was probably in his like mid sixties yeah, when this movie old. came out. Um, and it sounds like the reason they chose him specifically was because they thought of this movie as something like The Graduate. <laughs> So they literally got the guy who wrote The Graduate. So they got the guy who wrote The Graduate. Which I think is interesting because I think what they're saying is The Graduate's about someone who's in his very early 20s and he has all these possibilities in front of him. Um, and this is the story of someone who's in probably his early 30s, I presume. I think he said he's, he says he's 30 at 30? one point in the movie. Oh, great. So we watched it at the perfect time in yes. our lives. I, I wouldn't say so, but sure. <laughs> it just reeks of college to me. <laughs> it seems like this is the ultimate DVD you see in some guy's dorm. The ultimate dorm room poster. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I watched it the first time. I watched it for the first time at the right time. And uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you guys, how was it coming back to this movie, having already seen it? Like, weirdly not that different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember when I watched it, probably 10 years ago uh, around i thought it was a pretty engaging movie for its first half a little on the smug side Mm -hmm. and uh i don't know a little mean-spirited but i I thought it was technically very impressive and then it just loses me in the second half when it gets to the terrorism stuff i'm just like i'm checked out i don't know why and the exact same thing happened to me this time just like i don't really care and I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just the tone kind of just like wears on you after a while. Maybe it's like you don't really have anyone to empathize with at that point because you see that they're all terrorists. And like, yeah, Edward Norton kind of tries to stop him, but he just seems so apathetic throughout the whole movie that you don't don't really feel like he really cares about them, uh, you know, causing this, causing these acts of terrorism. Yeah, I... And especially... Like, I don't know, just like post 9-11, it's so weird to watch a movie that treats terrorism kind of just like flippantly, <laughs> casually. I don't even think it's flippant. I think they're, it's pro-terrorism. I think... That's the way you could interpret it. The, the read I have on that ending is that it is a happy ending. <laughs> I don't know if I interpreted it that way, but... Yeah, it's like the movie never really it never really satirizes these guys in the club like it never pokes fun at them it pokes fun at other people mm-hmm. but yeah that's kind of a problem with this movie totally I think is it and probably why a lot of like you know the the worst guy you knew in college probably <laughs> latched onto this movie cause it's like yeah we'll just be shitty wannabe alpha males that just fight each other and there's nothing wrong with that see that's that's where i disagree with you colin because i okay. do think it satirizes um the the fight club i think i think what happens is you have a movie that starts as a critique of capitalism and then becomes a movie that's pro toxic masculinity mm-hmm. but then it shows how even that can be repackaged as sort of like its own capitalist thing like uh when when you see edward norton's character flying around the country going to other fight clubs he calls them franchises (laughs) 
uh, and I think that's a very deliberate word choice where they they're showing that um, Fight Club has sort of become a corporation and it has all these employees that are mindlessly doing its bidding despite the fact that they're supposed to be about you know really embracing living in the moment and thinking for yourself and being free from the system and instead it's just created a new system that they're fanatics for yeah that is effective i guess but i think another problem with the back half of the movie is it just tries to fit too much stuff into it where you also have the big twist reveal going on kind of around all that you know corporatizing of the fight club and it's just it's just a lot and it's not that clean (laughs) i mean and then and to go back to this like this is your guys revisiting it uh john will ask you how did you feel about the twist this time does it work uh it feels very predictable but of course everybody kind of knows the twist even if you haven't seen the movie before like i have ah no twist definitely doesn't work Because, I mean, I just, I go back and I rewatch, I think about all the scenes again in my head, and it just, it makes no sense. If he's talking to himself, throwing himself around, I, and I'm not buying this just because it's narcolepsy, like, I don't know. You know, it's funny, we were talking about, like, the back half, or at least calling that being a problem for you. And you know what's funny? Watching Fight Club again, my biggest issue with it was kind of just the beginning, but sets everything into motion, whereas, like, he just kind of feels like he's become a zombie in modern day corporate America, and I'm like, that's it. That's pretty lame. This is like feels very pre 9/11. Like these are the kind of problems that we had. Makes me think about another movie that I think also has this problem now, like American Beauty, where it's like yeah. the 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 struggle of life is just how mundane it becomes and how we become stuck in our ways. And I'm like, I think about today where it's like you have to be so afraid of things like gun violence or just the fact that retail stores are swallowed up by huge corporations and this guy's like issues are he can't sleep and he's spending too much money on ikea furniture like, it doesn't even seem to be like too much money he like he's not talking about these like all of my credit card bills too big or anything like that but he's just like oh woe is me man what's what's wrong with me and i'm just like oh god get over yourself <laughs> yeah. man it, it definitely reeks of you know cis white heterosexual <laughs> male privilege um, speaking of films from this era, why does Office Space t- still kind of work when it's mining the same territory? Work always sucks. Something's never changed. <laughs> because it focuses so much on the mundane quality of work. Yeah. And the minutia. And just like the things like your reports and having multiple bosses. Like <laughs> the infrastructure of business never changes. And yeah. as long as there'll always be people that have to fill those roles. So I think that'll be a movie that'll be relevant in another 50 years from now. And I suppose it doesn't really frame its protagonist as like a tragic figure or anything. Like it it doesn't have grandiose ambitions the way American Beauty and Fight Club does. It's just like... He's certainly not hallucinating and making up fake people. He's he's just like hanging out with his friends and like thinking about quitting but i just i can't, can't make that leap it. to pretend like to imagine there's a person is there a condition like oh, there probably is but uh, like uh, do people really hallucinate people that strongly i guess like stuff like well even you know even a beautiful mind i thought the whole thing with john nash was that his um 
issues were more audio. He didn't like see like a secret Ed Harris agent all the time. <laughs> so like, is this a thing that can even happen? Not that it needs to happen because it's a pretty over the top movie, but like, can people actually hallucinate people and interact with them on a daily basis? I don't think so. I think the the best, the most generous way I can interpret it is um, is that Edward Norton's character is retroactively remembering these things as having two people, even though in the moment when he's living them, he's just either being himself or he's being Tyler Durden. Uh, and then just later when he thinks back on it, he thinks, oh, there were two people there. I think that's the... Because there's no way that there's anything as crazy as like I physically see another person and I can fight them and they can throw me around the room and they can you know be in one part of the house and I can be in another part of the house and then I always think to scenes like when they're in the like restaurant and he's pissing in the soup or whatever or when they're in the projector room like where was he really Mm -hmm. so those just didn't have those just dreams yeah did that just not happen at all that's lame (laughs) I think that would work a lot better in a book yeah. for some reason there's there's certain kinds of like with like fake people stuff like that like this isn't quite the same but it reminds me of the the movie marathon man i read the book first where there's a character that he's like the secret agent in all these chapters and then um the char- main character is always talking to his brother and then later in the book you find out the brother and the secret agent are the same person but you never would have put that together because you can't visualize it so for some reason i feel like not being able to visualize this while reading it would make it work better but i don't know because i haven't read the book maybe it's the same problem but also just a tangent why is it that these 1999 movies are now so celebrated you know there are people now that are the greatest year in cinematic history i don't know i think it's dumb we're we're, we're in that anniversary year also so what are some of the other films thrown into that conversation as like oh those were like better than like those were like really good actually I think the Matrix. Matrix. Also, I feel, well, I feel like a lot of the 1999 movies are. It's a lot of very good movies. I don't. There aren't that many of them that I would consider like masterpieces that I love or anything. Is the conversation whether or not they're the best movies or whether or not they're movies that really changed like the landscape of cinema? Though, even thinking about that, it's like I don't know. I mean, I think the Matrix had a ripple effect. But I don't know that Fight Club spawned a bunch of other Fight Clubs because <laughs> it wasn't really like it wasn't really a hit or anything. Uh, yeah, I think it may be more just about consistency. Like okay. that, there were so many like pretty pretty good movies, <laughs> especially to come out of the the Hollywood studio system. Like a lot of these aren't quite indie movies either, so that's kind of impressive. And everybody loves the Phantom Menace now. Oh yeah, classic. <laughs> the best. <laughs> the best. Okay. Uh, so, do you want to talk about the plot? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we already talked about the ending be. of the movie. Yeah. Um, Let's work our way backwards, just like the main character. Does he have a name? No. Okay. It seems like some people call him Jack. They call him that in the video game. Mm. I'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> thank, thank God. Um, so, quote unquote, Jack is a uh, automobile uh, recall uh, estimator. I think 
I don't know what the title was. I respect that they get into it a little bit. This this <laughs> seems like the kind of movie where they totally gloss over all that. But he does. I mean, he does actually get to. We see him do his job a little bit, mm-hmm. so. and he gets involved Res- in the car. Respect, thing. respect. Yeah. And um, I think the you know that's a sort of dehumanizing job because he's um, weighing the potential risk to human life versus just the cost to a corporation, and maybe that's what sort of inspires him to eventually reject the system but he finds himself in a malaise because uh he's successful and he's bored (laughs) Uh, and that's resulted in um an addiction with shopping at ikea i guess you see him like looking around his apartment at all the ikea furniture he opens up an ikea catalog sort of like uh, like a centerfold of like a porno magazine um so I guess he's sexually repressed as well, um, and uh, and he because of, he develops insomnia as a result of his boredom, he ends up going to these support groups. The first of which we see is for um, testicular cancer survivors, which sets up this movie's insistence on talking about balls all the time. <laughs> this movie loves dicks so much, and also hates dicks so much. Um, it's a constant refrain, you know, we got to chop off this guy's balls or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know how there's chick flicks? Is there dick flicks? <laughs> if there is, this is definitely this is one the, of them. This is like the, yeah, the main one. I guess. It just seems like such the opposite of a chick flick. It's just like light romantic fare. It's dark, gritty, You dick disgusting. flick. You watch this and you watch Boondock Saints. Yeah. <laughs> you guys didn't like Boondock Saints either, right? No, of course no, not. Yeah. <laughs> Chaotic mess. <laughs> um, and uh, 1999 is when that came out. Noise. Yes. <laughs> I had to check. I was pretty sure, but I had to check. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, the narrator's enjoyment of these uh, support groups is ruined because he meets this woman, Marla, uh, who is doing the same thing as him. She's just going to support groups because they're fun. I guess they sort of get into their reasoning. He he likes them because uh, he feels like people really pay attention to him. Because he says like, when people think you're dying, they really listen or something like that. Um, which is again it speaks to his how powerless I guess he feels, uh, even though it's just another example of him, just, you know, enjoying privilege and not realizing it. <laughs> And anyway, that this frustration with Marla makes him an insomniac again. Um, and so when he's on a flight back from one of his uh, recall estimates, he's sitting next to a person named Tyler Durden, who's played by Brad Pitt. Uh, he's a soap salesman who makes a uh, immediate good impression on the narrator because he's just like so cool and manly. And, and he knows about explosives he, that you can make with household items. Yeah. This is one of those That's not a red flag. Yeah, cool thing that people like to talk about on airplanes is blowing up. <laughs> There's even a like uh, a dream sequence. I, f- I think it's on an earlier flight. Maybe no, is it that flight? It might be that Brad flight. Pitt? I think it is. Where he, he uh, the narrator imagines the plane getting hit by another plane and just being ripped apart. Yep. And that was a shocking moment for us at home because for some reason the volume was like 50 times louder in that scene. <laughs> so loud. Uh, so the narrator comes home and he finds that his apartment has exploded. Uh, 
and he, that bums him out because all his Ikea furniture is gone. So he thinks to call Marla, but then he decides to call Tyler Durden, and Tyler Durden meets him at a bar, and they end up um, living together, and then in doing that, they start hanging out all the time, and in doing that, they have a little fight, because they've never been in a fight before. Uh, somehow Tyler Durden had never been in a fight before, according to him. Pretty surprising. <laughs> little tangent. One thing I remember this movie from when I was a kid was you would always see that scene, the, I want you to hit me as hard as you can in like the Fox on DVD, like commercial that came before every (laughs) Fox DVD with like interactive menus. Hell yeah. Deleted scenes. Director commentary. Oh, I wanted him to hit him as hard as he could. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yes, this is the future. Anyways, go on. They like it. They really like fighting. Um, and I think for me, this is the biggest... I have a hard time retroactively understanding this scene. Um, so the second time they're fighting in the bar parking lot, a group of guys come up to them and are like, this is pretty sweet. I want to get on it. <laughs> but from their point of view, this is just Edward Norton beating the shit out of himself in the parking but lot. But Sean, right? Sean, you can't tell me you wouldn't want to see a guy punching himself in the face <laughs> over and over again, right? In a way... That's more interesting, because how often do you see that? Never. (laughs) You're right. I don't even see a lot of fights. Not to jump ahead, but there's that great scene where he's in his boss's office, punching him, and he, like, punches himself, like, into some racking and on a table and shit, like, Mm -hmm. in some great stunt work. I'd pay to see that. So Brad Pitt gets talked a lot about for this movie. His, His performance is obviously important. I didn't find a lot of people talking about Edward Norton. What's up with that? He seems like he's doing a lot of work in this movie. Yeah, but he's not playing the cool guy role. <laughs> Everybody loves a cool guy. He yeah. doesn't have like 0% body fat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. This plays right into his, uh, his wheelhouse. Plus it's a duality role, which he really loves mm-hmm. to do, apparently. Uh, I think he's fine. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's not a flashy performance, I guess. It's just solid. I like the way that they make him sort of like physically decay as the movie goes on. He just gets grosser and grosser to look at uh, until he shoots himself in the cheek and becomes the grossest he could possibly be. Um, so the fight clubs, they take off. Um, they eventually take over the basement of this bar. Uh, it sounds like every night of the week they meet up with uh, with Meatloaf again. He's uh, He was one of the testicular cancer survivors. Uh, and, uh, and he wants to recapture his masculinity. I feel like he's sort of uh, emblematic of the toll that these characters think society takes on men because they explain that Meatloaf's character was a bodybuilder um and then because of testicular cancer or no was it just because of the bodybuilding he was taking testosterone he was yeah he was taking so much of that and then they had to give him something to dial that back they had to give him estrogen and, and but it, like because of all the other stuff that was in his system it overcompensated yeah and so not only did he lose his balls he has massive breasts now like, and his name Bob Paulson? <laughs> you can't hear I just smacked my forehead in embarrassment. His name is Robert Paulson, Sean. Yes, his name is Bob, but it's a famous line. It's like the second or third most famous line from the movie. I'm still learning. 
so his name is Robert time. Paulson. To be fair, I, I didn't remember that scene either. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't hang out with enough hardcore Fight Club fans, I guess. And Meatloaf is credited as Meatloaf a day. Because isn't his name uh, Michael a day? That's not what he's eating. Well, that's weird. It's like, why why go in between? Why not either? Because it's like, you can't use your real name because people are like, well, who's that? But like, why can't he just go by Meatloaf? I like Colin's explanation because he's eating a he's whole eating meatloaf, a meatloaf every a day. day. <laughs> you didn't get it. I had to glad Shot explained. <laughs> that doesn't, okay, fine. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to have a, a separate segment for performances. Are we just going to... Why not? Let's just talk about them now. But we gotta talk about the plot. I guess we were talking, we were talking about, about the, the ending. We already talked about Edward Norton's performance a little bit. That's pretty, why. Pretty much. Okay. I think Meatloaf is really good. In this I think movie. so too. He was bringing it in a way that I was not expecting. To the point where I'm like, why isn't he in more stuff? He can. <laughs> he has. He can be a character actor. Bob is very uh, sympathetic. He's, and you feel bad for him to be in this place, especially <laughs> when he joins the Fight Club and when he becomes a deeper part of Project Mayhem because. It's like he's so sweet. He doesn't deserve to be here. Something bad's gonna happen to him, mm. he, you know. But uh, yeah, really interesting performance, and I think he really he's the perfect person for the job. But what do you think of his prosthetic breasts? Uh, they seem okay. I think no, they're good. They're good, man. They're real good. I, you know, I totally forgot this. The makeup effects in this were done by Rob Bottin, who did the makeup effects on the thing. Oh, Ooh, Rob wow. Bottin is one of my favorite makeup guys because he did. He did so much work, great work over the 80s and 90s and then just disappeared. Like, no one knows where he is now. <laughs> like, there's no interviews with him, like, post-2000. So he's, he's just, like, into doing gross shit <laughs> to people's bodies. Uh, yeah. I think he also did, to- he did Total Recall, I think. Oh, there's some gross shit in that one. I think he did Seven as well. Yeah. <laughs> some gross shit in Seven. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. his thing. It's really gross body shit. <laughs> so uh, I think he did a good job. Yeah, and there's a lot of... Um, you know, blood being spat up and horrible injuries. I remember uh, burning. Jared Leto's character. There's one part where Edward Norton just beats the shit out of him. Mm. And they have a pretty quick shot of his face after the beating. And it is gnarly. I couldn't even tell if it was like him. Like, yeah. he runs into him later and it's like, what is that? Oh, that's him. Right. Jesus Christ. He's going to face do that? It shouldn't. It definitely is not meant to do that. Also, I like that we were kind of watching this movie because of Joker coming out, yeah. which has kind of the same built-in audience as this movie, and it's got the other Joker, it's got the other Joker. and also the Fight Club guys kind of become the Jokers at the end of the movie. <laughs> Just want to watch the world burn. And I also uh, on this like same kind of vibe, how did you? How did we watch this, Sean? How did you? How did you get this? So in college. Uh... <laughs> I forget what we were watching, but someone brought over like a hard drive of movies and plugged it into my computer because mine was the one plugged in, and uh, I just copied those movies off. And so Fight we Club basically we basically pirated Fight Club to get ready for Joker. Pirated it in college. Yeah, <laughs> it's the, it's it's the, the perfect way, way to do it. Yeah. It's a perfect experience. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, where were we? We were talking about. Um, the underground fight clubs that were starting. Yeah, the underground fight clubs are doing well, um, and uh, and that's when you start to see, uh, you know, there's the don't talk about fight club rule, but um, Edward Norton's like doing a lot of like wink, wink at people uh, that he sees in public. You know, one of his uh, like a, there's like an intern at his office that's in fight club. There's a 
waiter at a restaurant he goes to which almost feels like he's like going around checking in on people um just because it's so about fight club um and that's when brad pitt uh tyler durden uh starts sleeping with marla the uh, the helena bottom carter character that we talked about before that was ruining edward norton's life by showing up at support groups um I guess we could talk about her performance. I, yeah, go ahead. She's apparently much more well-written in the book. It sounds like they go into like what her job is mm-hmm. and more of how her life works. Uh, in this movie, you're just like, why is this woman subjecting herself to this madness? Yeah, I was going to say she's very poorly conceived in this particular <laughs> film. I think the performance is fine i think it's okay i know we had some issues with the american accent it's definitely in helen bottom carter's wheelhouse though playing like a yeah cynical goth lady cynical goth crazy frenetic crazy hair but yeah what do we really learn about her know about her why she goes to any of these meetings or anything yeah she she has an obsession with death um they they say that she's like um the tragedy is she could die at any moment and she's not dead yet or something like that um so she's she's obsessed with death and so she likes to go to these support groups where there are people who are actually facing their mortality for real yeah uh which in the book makes more sense because she's a mortician oh Uh, interesting she has a job yeah (laughs) no way you wouldn't think that from watching the movie you think she's just a junkie yeah that's what she seems like in the movie and and they don't say it in the movie so maybe she is just a junkie um, but yeah, knowing what you know about the twist, you're like, is the sex really that good? <laughs> that being around this crazy guy who is like later like starting a terrorist organization in his dilapidated house, like, is it really worth it? Well, it was all pent up because there's so much time where he's not having sex. So it's finally <laughs> unleashing. <laughs> I guess I got to keep picking movies where like sex is a big motivator yeah. for characters <laughs> yeah what's the deal Sean it's all these horn dog movies <laughs> I didn't know so we're gonna watch Last Tango in Paris mm. not a good one to watch now um, so yeah there's this uh, Tyler Durden starts what's called Project Mayhem <laughs> glad you really sold it because it is a Cool you thing. really selling it makes me realize how so silly cool. it sounds. <laughs> um, which it's like something a kid writes in his notebook in high school. Project me. <laughs> if you're a little kid, pledge allegiance to the corrupt government. <laughs> if you were a little kid, you'd probably come up with this idea because they're um, they're just like we're gonna like bring the Fight Club mentality to the masses, mm-hmm. and but like. But like starting fires, <laughs> blowing up computer stores, and uh, and we're gonna roll a ball into a Starbucks. Just that'll show them. Which, by the way, something I read is there's a Starbucks or a coffee cup in like every shot of this movie. Wow. Is that something you guys know or noticed? No, no. I didn't know. That's crazy. That's the Starbucks was cool with that. I apparently, or maybe it's just like a generic coffee cup. Otherwise, I definitely saw a Starbucks cup. Mm-hmm. Scene, mm-hmm. so. and, and also uh, Krispy Kreme donuts a lot of the time yeah I remember um, his name was Robert Paulson carrying around a box of Krispy Kreme donuts <laughs> he really did the narrator 
Um, so this Project Mayhem, um, yeah, I, I was talking about this like when we started this conversation of um, these uh, super privileged men who feel like the system has doesn't care about them uh, find their enlightenment in the Fight Club, um, and then Tyler Durden turns it into a corporation, which is what Project Mayhem is, um, and so right after finding their supposed individuality they are turned into faceless drones they all dress the same some of them like buzz their hair um they all talk the same it becomes very very difficult to distinguish between the people and in fact probably the only two you can really keep track of are the jared leto character because he's just so beautiful and uh, his name was robert paulson I also kept track of that guy from Mindhunter. Ultima Colony. But if you haven't seen Mindhunter, he just looks like another guy. He does get in to the say background. his name was Robert Paulson first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's his line. He's in a lot of scenes. He's kind of like Viggo Mortensen in, in Witness, where like, he's in a lot of scenes, but he's not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, um, it's, a, it's around this time that the narrator is putting it together that... Uh, he is Tyler Durden, so he's going to figure out uh, what's going on. But Tyler Durden is boxing him out of Project Mayhem, so he doesn't really understand what the project is up to, uh, and he finds out that they're going to blow up. It looks like just like all the skyscrapers in the city, mm-hmm. uh, which will apparently wipe out credit card debt somehow. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Blowing up the computers. <laughs> the money's in the computer. The money's in if the you computer. blow up the computer, there's no money. Yeah, they're working by Zoolander <laughs> logic. Uh, and then they're gonna. Oh, and then that's the that's the soap thing too. I skipped over the soap, but they Tyler Durden makes soap from human fat that he steals from a liposuction oh. clinic, and. That taught him a lot about chemicals, and now he knows that lots of household products like soap can be used to make bombs. So that's how they have bombs to blow up all the skyscrapers. Um, so he puts it together and tries to stop the terrorism from happening. Um, first, he sends Marla out of town, then he goes to the police. The one detective that we'd met earlier in the movie, because he was the guy doing the, the, the case for his house. His, his condo, I mean, getting blown up. It's like, ooh, this is pretty interesting. But the other, all the other police officers are in Fight Club. <laughs> so they, uh, as soon as that guy's out of the room, they pick up Edward Norton and they're going to slice his balls off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he steals one of their guns and he escapes and he goes to the skyscraper and he has a fight with himself as Tyler Durden. Um, and that's um, when he finally realizes that uh, he has the power to end this and he shoots himself in the head which uh, makes the Tyler Durden personality go away and uh, Marla's there and they hold hands and then all the other buildings blow up and the movie ends mm-hmm. Q wears my mind by the pixies which felt out of place because everything else there's like no other music in the movie that's or I mean there's there's score obviously but I don't think there's any other Score Sounds. done by the Dust Brothers, who worked with the Beastie Boys. Connection. Connection. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Chemical Brothers, as, no. I, as I looked into. 
it's, a, it's a little confusing, but yeah. They're different. But yeah, uh, Pixies. I mean, what's, what's fucking crazy, right? Where's my mind, right? Where's his mind? Where's his mind? Get it? Yeah. I got it. You didn't get it. We just don't get Fight Club <laughs> like you do. Get... Yeah, exactly. Come on, man. <laughs> we just don't get it. Do you think he was trying to kill himself? And he just lived? Or do you think he was like, I'm going to shoot right here? Like, I don't know. Seems like he's probably trying to kill himself. It's pretty weird they survived that. Yeah. I think that's the only way it makes sense. If it's like, I'm just going to shoot myself in the cheek and that makes him go away, I don't understand it. How do you how do you miss all that? I don't know. It's, it's a cool effect, I guess. I'm sure it's one of those things like it actually happens all the time. I just didn't want it to have a sad ending. Right, and that's the thing. Is is this a happy ending? Uh, in, it's in, not sad. It's not a, yeah, I guess, in its own way. Yeah, I suppose weirdly hopeful about the future without any money because it was all in the computers unless you know all the guys in project mayhem get caught which it seems like they probably should have a long time ago mm-hmm. so maybe not it's up to you it's like you put it together it's like really deep <laughs> the okay so what i read on the internet okay. is uh you know in buddhism there's this idea of you have to detach yourself like everything is suffering right and so you have to detach yourself from everything and um the narrator character has already detached himself from some of his worldly attachments at the start of the movie um and he lets go of more of them right he lets go of his job uh, by beating himself up in his, in his boss's office and getting free paychecks um he lets go of his family like he, he talks about how he his, his dad was already out of the picture, basically, and it, and it doesn't sound like he cares about his mom either. Um, and so you could say that, like, killing Tyler Durden, he's letting go of even, like, his his id or his ego um, and, and, and becoming a more enlightened person. Which I... I like, I could, I could buy that as the movie's intention, but I just don't buy into the enlightenment of the Tyler Durden philosophy. Uh, or, or even if you're saying that the narrator has like found a balance between his repression and Tyler Durden's freedom, and now he's in the middle of those two, I still don't feel like that's a good place to be if you're like watching skyscrapers crumble to the ground. You're like, <laughs> yes, good, nice. Died. He didn't Tyler die. Tyler Durden's though. dead, so he won. Bad guy died. <laughs> Bad guy I mean, okay, so we've talked about some of the performances. I feel like it's time to talk about Brad Pitt. Is he good? Is Brad Pitt a good actor? I mean, well, he is today. I like Yeah, Kurt it Russell. seems like he got better over time. He seemed to hit his stride kind of in the late 2000s. Um, I think this performance is fine. Like, I, I feel like a lot of his earlier performances sometimes can be a little manic and full of like ticks uh but he's like fairly straight for a character that's supposed to be like super uh charismatic and i don't know kind of eccentric so i think it hits about the right tone i think that you would want for this character i feel like his physical appearance like both the shape he's in for this movie he does have some the outfits he's yeah, wearing. Yeah, he's got some very silly outfits on. Um, I don't know. I think that brings a lot to the character. Yeah. Um, I just... There's so many people online 
idolize Tyler Durden. And I don't get it since he clearly becomes the villain of this movie for the second act. Mm-hmm. They just hate the system. They just hate the system that much? I, I mean, I guess the his core messages of, like, consumerism is soulless and... Uh, you know, embracing the fact that, uh, that you're going to die and living in the moment, those aren't inherently bad messages. They're just being conveyed by a bad man mm-hmm. who has bad intentions for society. Yeah. Is that an inherent flaw of writing like this sort of story? Where if, like, if you want to have a charismatic bad guy, you have to make him believably likable, and if you do that, Inevitably, there are going to be people that identify with that character. Uh, yeah, I don't blame that on the writing. <laughs> that just people will, you know, like it's like the the Joker, you know, the Heath Ledger Joker. You know, like there's some people that have been like, yeah, watch the world burn and have done horrible things. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't blame the the Chuck Palahniuk or the screenwriter for making. But I think there probably are people that like look at some of that stuff like. The scene where he has the the clerk at gunpoint saying like you're not following your dreams, uh, so go do that, and I'm going to check back on you in six weeks, or I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some people are like, yeah, you know that's that's kind of inspiring in a way. But I look at it, I was like, no, that's fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what a, like a mass shooter would do. <laughs> so I, I think that's what people see and yeah. connect with. It's 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 so funny because it's like a mindset that's trying to wake people up to reality, but then it like it doesn't make any room for people actually living in the real world and like having to make compromises and things not working out. Mm. Haven't real Fight Club started? I think probably after the movie, real Fight sure. Club started up. I mean, UFC is popular. That's basically just Fight Club. <laughs> a little different, but yeah. I don't know why. I don't. Who wants to fight? I don't know. That's another thing while watching this movie. They made it seem like like people really wanted to get into Fight Club. And I was just like, who wants to fight? <laughs> I don't want to fight. I don't want to get hurt. You see those guys walk around with the horrible wounds all over their face? I don't want to rip a tooth out of my mouth. <laughs> but I do got to ask you guys. There's the, there's a recurring, uh, I don't know, little, like little side scenes where they, they have a conversation, Tyler Durden and the narrator. Mm. Uh, what historical figure would you want to fight? What celebrity would you want to fight? And then later it's just like... Who would you want to fight in general? They talk about like fighting their dads and stuff. So I'm going to open it up. Any person who ever lived, who do you want to fight? But I'm going to give you the caveat. This isn't like a time travel thing. This isn't like I'm going to go back and fight Hitler in 1930 or something. This is just like, just now, just for fun, who are you going to fight? It's really hard not to pick Donald Trump because (laughs) it feels like a fight that you can win. Because he he only has a finite amount of energy and I don't think he has much left. Just rope that dope. (laughs) I'm trying to think of who is not Donald Trump who I would want to fight. What about Meatloaf? Why do I want to fight Meatloaf? <laughs> so what he did to the national anthem that one time. Exactly. I don't know, there's there's a lot of great people that that'd be good to fight. Richard Spencer, you know. Uh, I'd like to, you know maybe I'd like to see if. Uh, if Alex Jones is always like puffing up his chest and his shirt off, I want to see if he can do it. I want to fucking smash his face in. I think I could take him, even though he seems to think he's actually like in good shape or like buff or something. There's a lot of stickers over his shirt off. His chest is so. I want to put him in his place. I think I can it's take the him. Weirdest fucking. Physique. I'm gonna fight Alex Jones, even though it might be a tough fight. Yeah, it's dangerous. You belly flop on you. 
crushing. It looks like he weighs. <laughs> I'm a gut buster. Yeah. What a way to go. Did you think of one, Sean? I assume since you had that question in mind, maybe you had a few people in mind. No, my conclusion was if I ask the question, maybe no one will turn it around back at me and I won't have to think of an example. <laughs> Uh, if if you asked me this question, you know, uh, in the two thousands, I would have said Dick Cheney. Um, you know, now Mitch McConnell sounds good. Mm. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, that'd be easy. It I don't know why it's so victory. political. Well, it's just nice that like most of our worst people are really old and they'd be easy to fight. <laughs> really old and Rupert, running the country. I said Rupert Murdoch also. Rupert Murdoch. It's like basically Jesus dead. Christ. Yeah, you kill it's him. Like, just, just finish he, the job. He doesn't live through that fight. You're okay with that? <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah, you're not only going to win your fight, you're going to kill the person you're fighting. <laughs> um, I guess the last thing I just wanted to bring up was uh, we talked about how like the writing's pretty good it's politically flawed but like the, the people that are meant to be charismatic are charismatic clearly um i would also give props to david fincher uh, on this movie this was his fourth movie after alien 3 7 the game i think i should have written right. that down no i think you're right um he was not this is what i did write down though he was not um the studio's first choice interesting First choice, Peter Jackson. Weird. Mm, would have been a little too funny, I think, if we're talking about mid-90s Peter Jackson. Well, the interesting thing about it being funny is uh, Fincher was the one who inserted the voiceover. Uh, and he said, because without it, the movie was like super sad and pathetic. And he needed the voiceover to add that comedy back into the movie. Yeah, as much as I like David Fincher's direction in it, I do wonder if like the more comedic elements of it would work better if it didn't have his like dark oversaturated style to it yeah the other two uh, directors considered so Peter Jackson turned down because he was doing the Frighteners yeah uh, Brian Singer and Danny Boyle were also in the running to direct mm-hmm. this I mean I feel like Brian Singer is an obvious choice at this point in the 90s uh, he probably could have done it okay but it, I don't think it would be as good as Fincher's version Kevin also, is, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's probably. weird because he just got off such a big twist movie. Yeah, with Secret Identity. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Danny Boyle sounds very interesting. Danny Boyle is pretty. That would have been pretty crazy. I can't. Yeah, I don't know. You and McGregor, yeah, <laughs> of course, be the narrator. Uh, and oh, it's too early for Killian Murphy. Maybe that's Tyler mm-hmm. Durden. Funny how I can only come up with people that he's worked with. Before. Yeah, no one else. It's Can't be Brad Pitt. Robert Carlyle's well, I mean, not quite. Fincher did that star. with Brad Pitt, so it makes sense. He does like the Brad Pitt. Um, so Fincher had tried to get the rights to the book after he read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he lobbied really hard to get in to make this movie. And, and like I said, I think he did a uh, an admirable job. I love the movies. Um, you know, spliced in frames. A lot of the time you'll see Tyler Durden just show up for a split second, <laughs> uh, especially if you get uh, Edward Norton POV shot. Uh, I think that's cool. Uh, I wonder if the book even has that, like, he has a job working as a projectionist thing, or if that was just like, I like movies, I'm going to make a movie part of this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I like the, the use of 
CG every once in a while, which is like a very David Fincher thing, and yeah. also something I feel like was kind of unique at the time, using like computer <laughs> imagery in a movie that's not really a big blockbuster or anything. You're just using it as more of a style flourish. And he does it so well so many times, and then he does it terribly one time. Um, the one that stood out to me as really good was he has that one shot that like starts at the top of a building goes down and like into a car mm-hmm. and it's clearly CG but it looks great and you're like this is 99 this is crazy yeah. but the one that was terrible at least to me is um, when Tyler Durden starts sleeping with Marla the narrator has a dream that he's mm. having sex with Marla and it's very clearly CGI Edward Norton and Helena Bonham Carter, like, because I mean, they're doing like camera angles that are impossible to shoot, so they, they yeah. had a reason to use CG for that. But I think I, I think I found it a, a little too like disorienting to focus on their faces, so <laughs> I, I didn't quite notice it maybe as much as you did. God, it was weird. Yeah. What about a, the sweet Spider-Man opening credits? Oh yeah. What what was it about the <laughs> late nineties, early two thousands? Like we're gonna start a movie. We're gonna start inside just, someone's body. Yeah, it's just gonna be CG something. <laughs> You're just gonna stare at it for three minutes and it'll come out and we'll be somewhere. I think Jason X starts that way too. <laughs> yeah. That's around this time period. X Men starts that way. It's just a cool it's like we're in the body. Yeah. Look how crazy it looks in, in there. Spider Man. We're in <laughs> jeans. But yeah, you know, it was funny getting ready to rewatch this because in my mind I was like yeah I don't like a lot of the things this movie has to say but I feel like it's not a bad movie but why do I feel like that and I just feel like it's made in a very interesting way I don't think there's a dull frame in this movie I don't mm-hmm. think there's a, a wasted it's a long movie I don't think there's a wasted second visually and it's dynamic and I think that's mostly Fincher's touch and I like the gritty thing I think it works really yeah. well yeah it's gotta be gritty I mean good god if it was <laughs> like I've tried to read Chuck Palahniuk before, and I haven't gotten through a lot because it's really disgusting and just dark. Mm-hmm. So David Fincher seems like the perfect choice because all I feel like, like how about that house in the movie? Like yeah. that's probably one yeah. of my favorite things. That house is insane <laughs> looking, and the fact that there's that shot where they're like hitting golf balls out, and there's like there's not another like person for like in a four mile radius. I'm like that's so cool. This desolate decaying house in the middle of nowhere such a nice touch and and i totally feel the uh, the juxtaposition too right because he, he was living in this tiny condo that's full of stuff uh that was all brand new and now he's living in this massive house and it's run down and no one's around as opposed <laughs> to being in this populated building like it's it's very effective visual storytelling uh i, I read that david fincher's touchstone for the lighting was he wanted the movie to look like 7-Eleven at midnight. I totally get that vibe watching it, too. That I think he nailed it, if that's what he was going for. I noticed that he used uh, Jeff Cronenweth as his cinematographer, who worked with him before, or worked with him later. This was their first collaboration. They also did uh, Social Network, Girl Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl. So that's cool, because those are all really fantastic-looking movies. And this one is, too. I mean, yeah, there's some questionable CGI, but I, I, I like what... I, he tries experimental things and I'm like I'm, I always respect the, the risk that he takes even if a scene doesn't quite work with the visuals like it's like he's going for it he's trying something new it's still an interesting looking film yeah and speaking of going for it I think we're into the uh, the John's Corner section of this review oh. uh, I think you wanted to talk maybe about goofs or the video game or something 
Uh, f- first, since I actually am on the IMDb, just because I wanted, I was looking up something else. Uh, where do you guys think this is on the IMDb top two hundred and fifty? Mm, seven. Um, sixteen. Ten. <laughs> Seems pretty high, right? Let's see what's what's really it in between. He's also nominated for one Oscar for sound editing. <laughs> Yeah. For that one scene that almost Airplane blew scene. up our heads with how loud it was. Uh, so just so you can see the kind of company that Fight Club keeps to people that write on IMDb. Mm-hmm. It's um, just uh, number nine is Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And number 11 is The Fellowship of the Ring. So in between that is Fight Club. Dick flicks all around. Dick flicks. God, it's crazy when you look at these with some of these movies. Fight, it's crazy. It's so weird. Fight Club. Still. It's still a movie that I think teenagers will go back and like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the stuff you see now with um, Proud Boys and Incels uh, and, and anyone who follows Jordan Peterson, uh, it's clear that this like group of disenfranchised white men are, are not just a Generation X thing. They're going to keep being around and being a problem until we find a opposite for toxic masculinity. So... It's up to us, guys. The three of us need to find that. So we just chop everybody's dicks off? Or we could go that way with it. <laughs> Dickless 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, goofs. I can't find any fun goofs. Uh, when Tyler is urinating the soup, you can see the uh, the boom mic. <laughs> <laughs> you're, so, you're so focused on the dick, you don't even notice the boom. Yeah. Though the boom booms are are very much dick shaped, so yeah, maybe go. it was they like they, they saw that and they're like it enhances the scene. Plus, this movie has the get out of free uh, get out of jail free card of like we talk about like the artifice of movies, so like of course you can see the boom mic. That's like it's part of it, man. We're just that's a story we're telling. Okay, let's talk about the Fight Club video game. Let's. So uh, <laughs> in two thousand four, so just right off of the hot off of the success of Fight Club. <laughs> Uh, we got Fight Club the video game from a company called Genuine Games. Let's see. Are they still in business? I don't see anything about them being out of business. They also made 50 Cent Bulletproof, which is the 50 nice. Cent video game. Uh, and It's a pretty standard fighting game. It's, it looks like very modeled after Tekken. It does have a story mode where you play as an untitled hero. And it does have like voice acting. I would kill to see that i i wonder how like how similar it is to the movie and what i love is you look at all the characters and it's like every single person who's even just in the movie briefly is a character the detective character uh who the narrator comes to you know in the film when it's like i'm 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 part of project mayhem we're gonna do something bad he is a playable character uh the narrator's boss is a character of course um jared leto bob the guy who got the convenience store clerk who gets the gun fucked his head, he is a character. <laughs> and of course, Abraham Lincoln, because he's mentioned as someone that Brad Pitt. The Brad Pitt wants to fight. Yeah, wow. And uh, yeah, let's see. Um, let's see some of these reviews. Uh, Metacritic, it has a 36. So not, not so good. Not a great game. I see a lot of D minuses. Uh, game Revolution gave it an F. Uh, pretty funny, though. <laughs> Though Abraham Lincoln is ranked fourth in Electronic Gaming Monthly's list of top ten video game politicians. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, apparently there's a mobile version too. Oh, god, how? When? Where? Two thousand five? 
Was it on the end gauge? <laughs> it must have been on the end. What could it have been? Oh, that's bizarre to me. Uh, but hilarious. It just seems like another like it's things like that. It's like this is why people have like misunderstood what maybe Chuck Palahniuk was originally trying to say with Fight Club. We have stuff like the Fight Club video game. Uh, I'm 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 gonna assume Chuck Palahniuk isn't a fan of the Fight Club video game. I think that then probably wraps up our discussion of uh, the most discussed movie of all time, Fight Club. What's your letterbox rating, Sean? I haven't given it one yet. Probably three stars, though. It's funny because I would also give it three stars. I think it's just... It's a really well-made movie. It's it's well-directed. It has interesting visuals. Some of the writing is pretty good. Uh, acting's fine. I actually like the music. It's got that sweet late 90s, early 2000s kind of <laughs> drum and bass sound. Yeah, yeah. I was I was digging it. Yeah, it's good. It's a little long, but for the mm-hmm. most part, I'm not really like bored. Maybe I'm not super invested in the story, but it's it's always giving me something to kind of take in and digest, I guess. Yeah. Speaking of digest, Colin's tummy. I'm digesting. I think you need to be dinner. in a snack club <laughs> or bite club. Bite Club. Bite Club sounds, sounds like a subscription box service if it isn't already. It probably is. Yeah, I gave it three stars too. Because, um, yeah, it is just incredibly well made. I, I even wonder if like that's the reason some people think this movie has more to say than it does. Just because the style is so like immaculate and engrossing that people think it's, I don't know, more complex than it actually is. Yeah, it's like no one ever goes into like the 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 the, the creative thinking or mind behind Boondock Saints because it's not that well made. Yeah, <laughs> it's got some badass gun fighting stuff in it, but it's pretty forgettable. But this is uh is is real is real cinema, man. This is real art. It just kind of taps into some weird ideas. And also, pay attention to the ending. Tyler Durden, bad. <laughs> John, you have a, the next pick, right? I do. I think we all know what it is because we're going into Shocktober. For for October, we're going to watch 30, uh, 31 horror movies. Well, well, you know, we're each going to watch a certain amount. We're going to review 31 horror movies mm-hmm. be- between the three of us um, on our website, madlyplease.com. And so the film I picked would be the film that would fit in to day four. And that is Insidious. Uh, oh, Insidious. Which yeah. one is that one? That's a James Wan movie with ghosts and Patrick Wilson, which probably would describe about like eight out of the ten James <laughs> Wan movies that exist already. Yeah. I will also be watching The Conjuring for Shock. You're going to get the, the whole uh, James Wan ex- slash Patrick Wilson experience. Yeah. I do. I'm kind of putting together like my own. It's probably just something that I came up with, but my own like idea of how insidious was like really important to shaping how mainstream horror works today i think it's a key stepping stone into where we are right now so i'm looking forward to exploring that and talking about james wan he just started shooting his new movie today like as we're recording this aquaman 2 it's called malignant it's a giallo horror movie his return to horror i look forward to seeing what patrick wilson will be doing (laughs) he's not gonna be an aquaman 2 uh all right well that is the end of our uh discussion of fight club and the pick in general and so i all i have left to say is thank you so much for listening if you want to hear 
more, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for Mildly Pleased or go to our blog, mildlypleased.com. Uh, yeah, like, like John said, we'll be coming at you next week with Insidious. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Why does I get older? I'm getting older, competition is waning. I got the ball and I see the lane.